and welcome back to the year-end series of Let the Right Films In, a movie podcast. I am your host, Kayla Sainange, and joining me is my co-host, Tyler Hannon. Hi! And we are continuing to talk about our favorite movies of the year. If you missed the first part or any parts or any of these series that we've done before, basically we're just going to talk about stuff we liked, we're going to introduce some guests, they're going to talk about stuff that they liked, and it's going to be a really fun time. Yeah, this is like our favorite thing that we do every year. At least it's my favorite thing that we do every year, even though it takes up so much time and planning. Because we have smart friends. But Kayla, before we get to those smart friends and other people, what is a movie that you loved this year? Oh, man. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Full disclosure, we are planning in the new year to try and do a full episode on this. So I am going to try to limit myself and not run away with it. So Tyler, if I am running away with it, you have to stop me. But you may recall... On our breathlessly anticipating episode, (laughs) I mentioned how excited I was for Luca Guadagnino's remake of Suspiria. It's all a mess. The one out there. And I am so pleased to provide you this year-end update that I loved it. I am absolutely over the moon, insanely in love with this movie. We saw it opening weekend at our local art house theater. I was almost late, (laughs) and I was about to murder my boyfriend over it. Mm. Tyler got me a bucket of wine and a bucket of popcorn, which are my two favorite things to have while watching a movie. And... The lights went down, and it was just a rapturous film experience. I can't remember the last time I was so happy to have seen something in theaters. It is two and a half hours long, and it never feels like it. It's divided into chapters, which can be, like, really pretentious and sometimes annoying, but it, I felt, enhanced the vibe of the movie. And overall, it's just – full disclosure, I – feel like it's a movie you're either really going to like or you are going to hate it. So it will not hurt my feelings if you didn't like it, but I think that everybody should give it a shot. It is not a plot remake. It's more of a feeling remake, which seems to be exactly what Luca is good at, is kind of capturing a feeling and running with it. And God, what... A movie. (laughs) I'm trying to think of even where to start. So we have Dakota Johnson playing our heroine, Susie Banyan, arriving from her Ohio Mennonite farm to audition on the spot for a dance academy that she has been a huge fan of her entire life and makes several references throughout that she feels like that she's been drawn there her whole life, that she was meant to see them, meant to be a part of it. And just right off the bat, for me, that's like, despite the sinister undertones of what is really happening at this dance academy, there is something to be said about leaving behind a world that has you have always known but has always been restricting to you and finding yourself 
in kind of this a new family, a new art, a new way of thinking. And I remember being so overwhelmed with emotion when Susie is told that she has been accepted to the dance academy and she immediately starts crying when she realizes that like she's not going to have to pay to stay there. She's not going to have to go home. And regardless of everything that happens after that, that feeling is so amazing. And there are so many interesting threads to pick up on throughout this movie about womanhood and motherhood and sisterhood because it's kind of this miasma of I mean it's it's a witch coven which is kind of the most traditionally feminine I don't know iconography that you can find and laid into all of that is the recurring theme of motherhood and deciding that your birth mother does not have to be your true mother and that you can find these familial bonds outside of your bloodline basically and The double-edged sword of that is that this movie kind of is presenting a perversion of that fellowship in the way that uh, they're like kind of murdering some girls to feed the soul of their toad mother, (laughs) Helena Marcos. You know, sometimes to keep sisterhood going, a few sisters have to lay. So here's the thing, though, is not to. I don't want to spoil the end because I do want to talk about this at length. But I do think that the the ending of this movie shows that what the Marcos Dance Company was doing to preserve Helena Marcos is not like the true spirit of this sisterhood in this coven, and that the finale kind of sets things back on the course that they were supposed to be on and that and that it becomes the fellowship and the sisterhood that it's supposed to be. The mirror image of this kind of feminine sister energy is the plot line that runs throughout of the therapist who is really the only male character in the entire movie that has any importance and even he is still played by Tilda Swinton. So really, there are like basically no men in this movie. And that's kind of awesome. <laughs> Again, regardless of all the gruesome stuff that happens. But I think that there's something to be said about how a lot of the therapist's character arc is about his guilt and his shame over uh, what happened to his wife and what happens to his patients. And I don't know. I think that there's maybe a thread to follow about how the guilt and shame of men doesn't really do anything for women in hindsight. And there's this really great line at the end of the movie when Susie comes to see him, when she says, uh, we need guilt, but not yours. And I think that if you want to interpret this movie as a deep artistic thing and not just as a very pretty thing to look at, those are kind of the two things that we – have fighting and opposing each other is a man thinking that his guilt and shame can save a girl who was caught up in this coven and someone's pure love and mothering energy kind of being like, thanks, but no thanks. We didn't really need that. You tried, though. (laughs) I have like 50 bullet points I want to talk about, but I think I'm going to kind of cut myself off because I would like to save those for a full episode. Tyler also saw this movie, so you could probably talk about it for a minute. I was going to say, and, and I have done nothing to produce you or cut you short. I was just going to let you keep going. <laughs> now, this is uh, truly uh, quite the spectacle to behold and can mean so many different things. I did have to watch it a second time to really appreciate some of the things that I thought were pretty core to it. 
there is a lot going on. It is a lot to take in, but it's truly quite the spectacle. And mm-hmm. I think I ended up really liking it in the end, in the end especially the more I thought about it. Uh, I definitely do want to dig into it more, but I'll have to like read for two weeks to <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh. <laughs> I feel like the other point I should make on top of all of the real dense stuff I just threw at you is that it's also a rapturous viewing experience. The dance sequences are incredible. The chemistry, I guess, if you want to call it that, between Tilda Swinton and Dakota Johnson is undeniable. And the... The bones breaking, just mm, chef's kiss. Yeah, I... beautiful. I must say, this: the scene that everyone was talking about over the summer... That was screened in advance for critics with the uh, bones breaking is every bit as gruesome as advertised. So I will say for those of you who are not super on the horror side of things, especially those of you who are not fans of body horror, there is a lot of it in this movie. And part of it is just that dance, like it's not necessarily ballet dancing, but dancing for women is an art that requires almost like a level of dedication that borders on self-mutilation and that is very well represented in this movie (laughs) but again that's something we can get into more on our full-length episode so yeah all right do you have any final final things you want to say about suspiria i kind of just ran i did run away with it i'm sorry no no, i mean (laughs) after what i did with mission impossible it was the i I had to let you go off (laughs) Uh, it's just no it's a real symphony uh it's Felt like I went to church in a way. Yeah, it was just definitely one of those movies that the credits started to roll and I was beaming because it was just such a treat and an experience to feel that way about a movie that I have had been so hotly anticipating. I think the last time I had an expectation actually met like that was when we saw The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in 2011. R.I.P. Thanks, Sony. I hate you. You ruined my life. It's fine. on tyler do you want to tell me about one of your favorite movies of the year absolutely and uh, i will keep up with you in that this is also a movie uh that is probably like love it or hate it you know and i think this episode's going to be full of uh very grim or divisive movies and i'm just going to keep on with that with you were never really here they said you were brutal i can be i want you to hurt them Hear me? My name is Joe. It's 
okay, come here. Close your eyes. It's the Lynn Ramsey movie starring Joaquin Phoenix as a uh, a traumatized veteran who is kind of numb to violence, and the uh, he takes a job. It starts to unravel, and it blows up his life, and he unravel un- unravels this conspiracy. It's this. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about it because the same way Suspiria has so much to it. I guess you never really kind of could, but it's also very like lean and brutal in a way that I is part of what I appreciate about it even though it's not at all a surreal movie it somehow fuels unreal uh and like this this real nightmare that you're not sure you're kind of gonna wake up from uh Joaquin Phoenix puts in a real uh like this shouldn't be the touchstone for it but like it's my touchstone for it a Ryan Gosling and Drive performance or a Ryan Gosling and Blade Runner performance or a Ryan. <laughs> One of these, uh, he says hardly any words, does a lot of acting by almost not moving at all, but he's really good at it. He he looks terrifying in this movie. He just looks like this burly guy who could rip your head off if you needed to. Uh, I think his performance might be one of the things that could be divisive about this movie, but I really like him in the role. Like It's got a really good score, too, that goes along with it. It's just, it is not anything revelatory in terms of its concept uh if you've seen it's like an art house version of i don't know like taken or any uh like i was thinking specifically man on fire with denzel washington you know uh just like any like this grizzled guy who's got like his heart has shrunk several sizes and who's just traumatized by violence finds a quest almost and also has his life torn apart in the it's just it's like this year especially but also in general i tend to gravitate towards movies that for better or worse really really leave me feeling stunned and like feeling in ways that i had not felt before and this is one of those where actually similar to suspiria i kind of just had to sit there and go and just exhale and try to process what i'd just seen it's a movie that um, you actually like eat your knuckles with the amount of tension and, and like uh, just like not even just chewing on them. You ha- you ha- are out of fingers by the time it ends. I don't know what that is. Uh, Tyler still has fingers. So just fingers. for the record. It is still, I guess it is still <laughs> a metaphor. Um, but it's also another example of a movie that just has tremendous violence, but almost like the threat of the violence and the after effects. I don't know. The violence is super grisly in a way that those more mainstream versions of this movie never have. I can see resisting it because it is not exactly an unfamiliar concept, but the the execution is kind of tremendous. And that's not, uh, none of this should be that surprising. It comes from director Lynn Ramsey, who also made, uh, we need to talk about Kevin, so she is like a Hall of Fame, like a Love to Suffer Hall of Famer. <laughs> and Love to Suffer is one of my favorite genres when it's done right. And she has a certain, <laughs> she's really good at suffering. And yeah, I don't have a lot to say about this movie. Uh, more just as it's more or less been forgotten because yeah. uh, there were a lot of movies this year and just also, a lot of year this year. Yeah, this year has been 15 years long somehow. So yeah. That's and uh, so you're probably not looking for art that also contains suffering, but I like escaping into art that has <laughs> suffering, and this is one. Yeah, it's just a, truly just a tremendous accomplishment. I don't. I hope Lynn Lynn Ramsey 
a woman getting to make this movie about uh, masculinity and the effects of violence is also nice because that's not a super familiar thing. Um, I don't know that it's like an intrinsic part of this movie. It's not like a woman's take on this thing, but I, she, I find her fascinating and I love suffering. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's kind of the theme of this year. It gets brought up on several guest segments that that's kind of what we were all feeling when we went to the movies this year is a certain sense of wanting to suffer. Not suffer, but to feel like someone gets it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so thank you for sharing that. I also love to suffer. I'm just kidding. Um, but well, let's take the listeners to some more suffering. Yeah, let's take you into some of our guest segments. As always, our website is ltrfi.com. You can find us on Twitter at ltrfipod. That's also our username at most things. And if you have a lot to say, you can email us at ltrfipod at gmail.com. Enjoy. Joining us now is Jess Peacock, author and professor. Jess, which movie have you selected to talk about today? Um, I uh, chose Alex Garland's Annihilation. Awesome. Annihilation was one of my absolute favorite movies of the year. So I am so excited to hear what you have to say about it. What made this your favorite movie of the year? There are a lot of reasons. It's uh, it's uh, hard to necessarily pinpoint one specific reason, but there are so many just amazing things about the film, the, the book as well. Um, but the film was slightly changed from the book and they're both awesome in their own right. But with the film in particular, um, I mean, some of the obvious points with the film is the uh, the amazing predominantly female cast which the the movie right off the bat because of the nature of the film the nature of the cast it it passes the Bechtel test but also it passes the Kent test um you know there are uh, prominent women of color in this film uh that are not simply there to be supporting players you know for the for the protagonist they have their own stories they have their own arc in the film and so just, you know, the fact that it that passes those two tests right off the bat is uh, it just makes it a, a touch point uh, for for the for this year's sci fi and horror films. But more than anything, I mean, one of the one of the things I love about Alex Garland and, you know, because, you know, his, uh, his previous film being um, Ex Machina is his sort of focus on this idea of transhumanism and uh you know, the uh, transhumanism is sort of this, this, I guess, a, f a philosophical uh, perspective, philosophical movement 
that suggests that the the human race, the human condition, humanity needs to and will sort of evolve and develop beyond uh, what what we are now. And and transhumanism is in particular uh, deals with how humanity will sort of enmesh with technology and we will take sort of an evolutionary leap. He really, Garland really touched on that in, in Ex Machina and with uh, Annihilation, I feel he's sort of also ch- touching on transhumanism, but with sort of a ecological uh, bent, sort of an eco-transhumanism, uh, which is really appealing to me. Because, you know, one of the things that I focus on in, in sort of monster studies is this idea of unhuman phenomenology. So, you know, phenomenology sort of being focused around human experience. And what the the monster does is sort of opens up a door to this sort of anthropomorphized phenomenology, um, which really has its roots in uh, Immanuel Kant uh, and his enlightenment thinking. You know, Kant believed that we have really no direct duty or responsibility to non-human animals or nature. Uh, and he said that, um, you know, the, the, the sole purpose of nature and the sole purpose of animals is to serve our ends, humanity's ends. They're a means to an end and uh, they don't have any consciousness or, or arc of their own. They're here for us. And this, this sort of enlightenment era phenomenology you know, viewed human experience and human experience alone as the uh, sole determiner of truth, uh, rather than sort of being a point of departure uh, toward uh, truth. And so for Kant, anything other was only meant to uh, serve humanity. And I I see these sort of ideas coming to bear uh, within Annihilation. You have obviously human characters with human frailties there all the characters are broken in some way or damaged in some way making them even more human uh, because we all are to some extent and they they all find some sort of transformation or or metamorphosis through their enmeshment uh through sort of this uh almost transubstantiation of nature you know where they they begin to not evolve into nature, but become enmeshed with it. And obviously, we're dealing with metaphor here, and you know there are there you know there are problems with within this idea of sort of eco transhumanism, and even even within the film, you know, there's a loss of human identity, and there's existential risks that uh, the characters are are also dealing with. But it, from my perspective, me viewing this, it really it addressed sort of this enlightenment idea of phenomenology that came from Kant. And then, you know, you have philosophers who resisted uh, Kant's uh, theories like Max Horkheimer and uh, Theodore Adorno because they argued that the enlightenment led to, led to humanity using rationality as a means to conquer nature and uh, make everything quantifiable. So if something couldn't be quantified, then it was useless, uh, which separated humanity uh, from nature. And, you know, of course, we oppressed it and, and we, we use nature for our own means. And uh, Adorno and Horkheimer used this term corrosive rationality, uh, which was the result of the Enlightenment. And it rejected sort of any uniqueness in objects, um, and it sought to kind of erase all 
autonomy uh, under sort of like this steamroller of conformity. Uh, and so, you know, most of our environmental problems stem from a separation of self and other, you know, a, a separation from the human body and the rest of the natural world. And annihilation might be asking if the answer to this problem in some sense is to rejoin creation, to mend that divide. And when, and when I watch the film, I, 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 see, I see this really jumping out. And again, there's sort of a, this is happening without permission to some extent. But I see there being a discussion point in this film around this idea of eco-transhumanism and what it means to not only reconnect with nature, but that sort of being a stepping point for where humanity might go in the future. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and so I'm curious, on top of that, if you want to try and apply human philosophy to a potential alien creature or species, do you think maybe that that's the kind of, if you could read it as perhaps this species coming to earth to create something new and to work with something new and having perhaps a similar philosophy where the materials that they're using are for their own gain, for their own, I don't know, advancement. <laughs> so you have this alien race mm -hmm. that comes in and sees us very much the same, like this is for us to use, this is for us to create with. And you don't have your own autonomy or your own decision in that. We're just going to go ahead and do it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there there is a you can flip this script and and, you know, where I've been talking about our need to be able to sort of transcend our current ecological status. Yeah, I mean, you can flip the script and and almost see the this alien force as being a colonizer, um, and and you then you can talk about colonialization and and how we have uh, as as uh, the white power structure has moved into environments and completely taken them over. There is a discussion to be had around that, and that's you know, and that's the beauty of uh, sci-fi, and that's the beauty of horror is that. At the end of the day, I don't know necessarily what what Alex Garland's point was. What you know, what he was trying to say. I don't know what Jeff necessarily what Jeff Vandermeer, who wrote the novel, is if if he's trying to say something. The beauty is that once the once a piece of art is put out there, we can pull from it what we what we want, and and that, and that can be multiple perspectives, and and even perspectives that are uh, at odds, you know, with each other to some extent. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, you know I, I write about all the time is is the the multivariant metaphors that we can pull from these narratives. Um, and so, yeah, no, I think that perspective is is completely uh, legitimate. And yeah, that's the beauty of it. I think that's something super beautiful about horror as a genre in general is that you pretty much can walk into it and take out of it what you want. Um, and yeah, yes. so I'm just curious. Do you have any final points that you want to touch on or? Any, I don't know, any other things about the movie? Well, it will be interesting to see if they if they continue on uh, with because you know the, the, uh, Annihilation is the first of Vandermeer's um, uh, Southern Reach trilogy. This is you know this kicks it off. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they pursue uh, the next two, and if they do actually pursue the next two, what will be interesting is they. I don't want, I don't want to use the term radically, but they did change the ending uh, of the book. Because part of the uh, narrative of the book, um, the lighthouse plays uh, a much greater role in the novel uh, than it than it did in the movie. And there is a I'm trying not to go into spoiler territory here. 
there is a, there is a figure uh, within the lighthouse that is important to the remainder of the uh, of the trilogy, uh, which that really wasn't touched on uh, too much in the in, in the film adaptation. So I'd be curious to see if they do pursue a trilogy, uh, and if they do, how they might how they might rectify uh, that. Personally, I think it just you know it stands fine on its own. It's um, it leaves more questions than answers. Uh, which uh, sometimes that can annoy me as a viewer, but I felt that this material needed that. I, I felt like a closed narrative, something that just answered all the questions would have uh, defeated the purpose of a film like this. So um, yeah, I, I, one of the one of the best of the year easily, uh, a great follow-up by Garland to Ex Machina. And I, I'm looking forward to see where he goes next. He, I think he is one of the most exciting filmmakers at, at work right now. So yeah, it'll, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath yeah, for his next project. we are in total agreement on that train. <laughs> we are very much on board. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was totally awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, do you have any other stuff that you'd like to plug? Sure. Well, um, I my book that is out uh, is called Such a Dark Thing, Theology of the Vampire Narrative and Popular Culture. And you can get that through whatever portal you want to use, but it's available through Amazon. And I uh, write a semi-regular column uh, for Rue Morgue that is available online. It's called Hallowed Horrors. And basically what I do is uh, I take the horror genre and I put it in conversation with uh, religion, theology, uh, some philosophy, and uh, it's it's not as highbrow as it sounds. Um, it does. Uh, I, I try to do one a month, depending on my schedule. So and that just you can go to Rue Morgue uh, website or just Google Hallowed Horrors and Rue Morgue. I will also plug for you because we enjoyed it so much. Uh, we had the pleasure of seeing your lecture at Salem Horror Fest on horror is resistance. And if I remember correctly, that has also been put to text on Rue Morgue. Yes. If you guys have a chance, you should read it because it was great. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Of course. Um, yeah. So we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. now is Gabe Akins, the digital content editor at Substream Magazine. Hey, Gabe, how's it going? Oh, are we are we not doing this all in sign language? Oh, no, unfortunately, it's a podcast, which is like radio on the internet. So no, no one can see you. Oh, man. What, what, like, what time should I listen? To? <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's all the time. It's on demand. Okay. But does it have bits? Yes. Oh, good. So by the time <laughs> that people listen to this, we'll all be doomed. <laughs> yes.
Basically, yes. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yes. So, Gabe, what is your pick for your number one movie of 2018? Uh, as everyone can probably guess from that elaborate joke intro, my movie of 2018 is A Quiet Place. Amazing. I would also like to point out that that was a double joke in which we made fun of the concept of A Quiet Place and all of the Minnow Beats Whales fictional podcasts where everybody in the podcast universe doesn't know what a podcast is. Man, I love when you just point out jokes and you say like, ah, yes, and this is how we did the joke. Bits. We've got layers. <laughs> so many layers. Gabe, what is it about this movie that made it stand out for you? I think the silence is my guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you would be right in that... Uh... Obviously, in the last couple of years, uh, horror has had a kind of a resurgence into uh, the pop culture zeitgeist. And I think A Quiet Place is a good example. Uh, horror, really, all you need is if you have one really solid idea and execute it very, very well, you can make a pretty damn good movie. Which, in this case, for A Quiet Place is, what if it's a horror movie where no one can make any noise and there's almost no sound or music in it? Yeah. The place would have to be quiet, as it were. <laughs> um, the place yeah, this is very quiet. <laughs> I'm not speaking in this episode in protest anymore. Um, this is a movie that we saw pretty soon after it came out, and I really this is like a good romp of a movie. And I think it's also good to remember sometimes that like we have a lot of prestigious horror happening right now. And while I love a real like cerebral deep dive kind of movie. I also definitely love just having a good time and being reminded that at its root horror is a genre that's based on going to the theater to kind of have the crap scared out of you and not to think a lot. Like it's a good popcorn movie, which I love. Like there are very few movies that are popcorn movies that aren't ironically good. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I just think that, I mean, on on that level, on a popcorn movie, it works, but just, again, on an artistic level, like, all of the work that went into the sound department of this movie is just unreal. There's just enough touches of music where you get a sense of the mood, but then at the same time, they do let all these sounds of the natural world uh help enhance the horror because obviously in this movie if something makes a sound that means some giant alien like creature is going to come tear you in half yeah not good are you really not going to talk <laughs> you two are doing such a great job i would uh never name tyler is surviving true i guess we're dead that's what we should have done is we should have just recorded 10 minutes of silence and put it in the podcast <laughs> And they're like, and that was our discussion on a quiet place. Yeah, I'm like, um, not talk. Transcribe our entire conversation. Just put it in a footnote. Yeah, in the show notes. John Krasinski hasn't done a lot of writing and directing up to this point, and this is his first. I uh, nope. no second because he did brief interviews with Hideous Men. No, he did. He's done two movies before this. He Damn also it. did The Hollers. Okay, so it's his third movie, but first like big success, basically. Mm -hmm. He did like little indie movies yeah. before this. That I mean, we we could say that probably unarguably this is John Krasinski's like most successful project since he was on the office. Probably. Yeah. I would, I would have to agree. Rude to Jack Ryan. <laughs> but yeah, I think he brings a, a lot of heart and gravitas in his performance. I think that he is a real good dad. <laughs> he's, a, he's a real good dad in this movie. Well, kind of not really. 
Okay, he starts off being not very good because he definitely lets one of his kids get mowed down like a dummy. And then lets the other one and then lets another one blame herself for over a year for it. Okay, so what we learned actually is that I was wrong. (laughs) But um he learns and then becomes the father he was always meant to be. He he looks like a good dad. He looks yeah. very, he looks very dad like in this movie. God, he looks great in this movie. I just have to say. <laughs> and it also does a lot of children in peril stuff, but not in a way where it doesn't feel like the not MacGuffin, but like kind of the crutch that many movies uh, use children in peril to be. It's like you know a key part of the story. The main character is really the child herself and her following her story, which. It was really cool to get a movie that you know, starred someone who is um, actually deaf. Yeah, for so, one, yes, <laughs> starts someone who's actually deaf and committing to that and giving her real stuff to do. Then she's like, she is so good too. So I do hope mm-hmm. she, she continues to get work because really Krasinski does a great job putting this movie together. And Emily Blunt is obviously a star. Put a shotgun in Emily Blunt's hands just all day. All in. Oh, yeah. I should have her name pulled up. But the daughter is really the star of the movie and just, like the emotional beating heart of it. And I think her presence helps like keep this from feeling like more of a van- vanity project. It might feel like otherwise. Uh, just for the record, her name is Millicent Simmons. Uh, but yes, I agree in that at, the, at its core, it is kind of a movie about family and what parents will do to protect their children. But it would be really easy to fall into just having those children just be plot points for the parents to act off of. And in this case, uh, both of the children are given their own arcs, are given their own agency. And I think it wor- makes it work much better than it would if it was primarily about the parents. I think it's like a really interesting companion piece with a movie like Signs, where it de- like Signs definitely has all of the pitfalls that we're talking about. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's nice to see that that kind of concept can be pulled off and, you know, that we have like a good enough talent of child actors that can kind of carry that story. And it speaks well to Krasinski's that he has uh, restraint in many areas in this movie that I would not necessarily have expected from an actor turned director, especially like, I guess, no shade to the office or anything, but like, I don't think, I think it's pretty clear. None of us expected him to create something quite like this, especially on a genre level so that it works as well as it does. I think speaks very well to him and that it isn't, he still is like the valiant dad, but uh, not as, Uh, obnoxiously as he could have been right and i think there are a lot of very sweet moments in this movie like when he's with uh his son at the waterfall and uh, they have that conversation about how his daughter is blaming herself for uh the other son's death i think is a very very touching moment in this kind of popcorn like crazy horror film yeah and i think that he does a really good job of like trying to navigate those situations and dealing with his son's fear and all of this good stuff. And honestly, shout out to Emily Blunt's character oh for gi- for giving birth without making sound while a crazy alien demon is in your house. I can't even like, I- I'm just saying if this were the world and I had no access to birth control, <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah. Would not be having sex. The biggest glaring flaw in the whole thing is like, why y'all having kids though? <laughs> I guess, what are you doing? Like, I, I decided to read it as 
even in the most absurd circumstances, yes. human psychology is always the same. Mm-hmm. And it's very common to try and like have a replacement child as a way of coping instead of dealing with your grief. And when you literally can't go to therapy because uh, there are only aliens, <laughs> like it makes sense that you would maybe not make the smartest decisions when dealing with the incredible trauma and grief of losing your child unexpectedly. I think that like this is a movie that people have definitely tried to pick apart to death. And like, yes, there are some things that don't quite work if you really think about it, but God, it's it's a movie. It's not the real world. We can just let some things go. It's fine. Right, absolutely. And I think there, I've seen also a lot of writing about people trying to infer meaning into this movie. Uh, from some of his prior projects that he has been a part of, I think the general assumption about John Krasinski is that he is on the more conservative side of things. So I've seen people try to argue that this movie is a explicitly pro-life movie about, what? you know, how they want to, yeah, about how they want to, like, continue having children even in this world where having a child and going through that whole process is dangerous so i've seen that reading of it i'm not entirely sure i completely think that there's enough in there to support it but no i don't agree with that let me just get real close to the mic and say that's real dumb Um, I think that I don't yeah, know that it's real dumb. I just like, I that I don't one I don't know anything about John Krasinski's politics. I guess, but I just don't think it's that deep. <laughs> and I think that like I read it as in like it is about again a movie about family and what you would do to protect your family, and that's pretty yeah. much as deep as it goes. And so it'll be sure. interesting with the sequel if how, if that happens, yeah, right. Has it been officially started, I think, at least writing? I'm I don't know. Sure. I, last that I heard was that they were like, we just think it's so great that you can tell a single contained story. And then they were like, sequel, maybe? I so. think I do plan on doing a sequel, but I do think... Um, well, when it when it came out, they were like, oh, yeah, we can just tell a contained story. And then a couple weeks later, when they saw how much money <laughs> it made, they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> Capitalism. Which, yeah, I'm semi-concerned about it because I'm not sure how you can tell another story in a satisfying manner in this universe considering Emily Blunt with a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> True. True. I don't what do you what do you need? Fair. Now that they know what is the weakness, <laughs> um they'll be good. That's a that's actually literally my only gripe with the movie is the fucking whiteboard where they're taking notes and one of them is like number 3, what is weakness? <laughs> and I'm like you would Stop. <laughs> Again, like it's written like in all caps with like three question marks, like weakness. I'm like, who was the set designer and what happened that day? <laughs> they were like, yep, that I don't know. Fuck it. What is weakness? All right. So as we get to our, uh, our, our time limit, Gabe, do you have any final points or I heard about a, your wild uh, office sequel theory? Anything else you want to touch on before we go? Right. Maybe uh, this is actually Jim and he picked up his bad uh, whiteboard drawing from Michael Scott. Could, could be. Could be. <laughs> Maybe. Those are, that's the connection. <laughs> there's no proof for it, but there's no proof against it either. <laughs> Especially since I've never watched The Office. <laughs> the only bummer would be that he definitely abandoned Pam somewhere. True. And all- actually, he does that in the series, so yeah. it's oh, actually and, not any and different. Also, in this universe, Michael Scott would have been dead in 10 minutes. He would have been like, what? We can't talk? <laughs> Bam. Gone. Well, I, I guess on a, a more serious note, we did kind of talk about like 
like you said, this is just a really fun popcorn horror movie based on a pretty solid idea executed very well. Uh, you know, if you want to read a ton into it, I guess you can. But at the end of the day, this was just a really fun movie to experience. Uh, really well done. Uh, Krasinski like, clearly has the chops to make genre movies, act in them. Uh, man, I just think it was a really well-made movie. Yeah, I'm definitely super curious to see what happens next outside of like sequels to this. Gabe, do you have anything else that you'd like to plug before we go? Like you guys introduced me as, uh, I am the digital content editor, editor at Substream Magazine. Uh, you can find my work at substreammagazine.com. We've got a whole bunch of cool end of the year stuff happening. And if you want to pitch me music or if you want to write for the site, uh, my email is gabriel at substreammagazine.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sitting with us now is Sean Lawfrey. Sean, how's it going? Hey, Tyler. Doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. And, you know, glad to have you on again. It's been a while, but it's an annual tradition to have you on this episode. Mm-hmm. And so what 2018 movie have you picked this year? Uh, so the movie I selected this year is First Reformed. It is a drama starring Ethan Hawke and written and directed by Paul Schrader. Um I guess probably most notably as having written Taxi Driver. And this kind of feels like a sort of a a twist on that. 40 years later, Ethan Hawke is a alcoholic priest with lots of demons, lots of issues that he's wrestling with. And that's kind of how the movie starts. And it goes, it goes many places from there. Uh, And yeah, I guess that's what we're going to talk about today. So thanks for having me. Yeah. So the thing that I know most about Paul Schrader is that he is a noted Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> um, yeah, he loves Taylor Swift. Yeah, I heard that too. And I think he sense. also has some monstrous opinions. Uh, so just to get that out of the way too, I don't know exactly what it's been said, but I just know he just likes to run his mouth. So like most people, I think he's problematic. So we'll just say that up top too. Probably probably a good one to start with. Uh, yeah. What? So yeah. Okay, so what about this movie made it your favorite movie of 2018? Well, uh, so Ethan Hawke's performance for one, um, and that's what is going to be coming up a lot, I think, over the next uh, month or so with uh, awards uh, talks and stuff like that. 
at least I think it's the best performance of the year. He is very, very expressive, very emotive, very convincing and believable and scary at times for sure. Um, you know, the, the path he's taking and the choices he's making and kind of all the, the self-destructive behavior. And, you know, there, there's some fantastical elements kind of that uh, get skewed in there too. And there's also kind of this whole economical or not economical, ecological slant as well um, about how we're destroying the earth and kind of all the, the climate change stuff that's happening right now. So um, it's also, like I said, it kind of is the taxi driver ish thing in terms of, uh, you know, how Ethan Hawke's dealing with his demons like uh, De Niro did in that movie. But um, it's, it's definitely updated and, and feels really relevant to the conversations that are happening uh, uh, today in politics and stuff like that. I don't know how much we want to go into talking about that, but you know, Tyler, you sent you've seen the movie too. You kind of know what I'm talking about. Yes, uh, I'm glad I'm not having kids because uh, it <laughs> very much is like you know, is it really a good idea to bring children into this world that might burn down in the near future? Right. Good question. Um, good question, yeah. buddy. And so, uh, and where it goes from there is the the priest is kind of uh, asked to step into the life of somebody that is really. Um, kind of a zealot for climate change to the point where he he doesn't believe that uh, he should be living anymore and doesn't think that anybody should want to because of how much we're destroying the earth and how rapidly and um, he kind of untangles this web of uh, you know corporate uh, you know stuff that's leading to to killing wildlife and animals and stuff and uh, so and so he's Ethan Hawke's character is asked to step into this guy's life and then step into, uh, you know, trying to trying to deal with his own stuff while he's helping uh, this other family deal with their stuff and dealing with his church, uh, you know, being asked to close down because of this like mega church moving in. So um, I don't know. It's just really kind of a heavy character study. And th- those are the kinds of movies I'm drawn to um, other than the horror stuff that we're usually talking about. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I guess all that rambling mess is why I like this movie a lot. So- Besides, like, the ecological part, like, the actual plot part, the two major points I took away. Mm-hmm. One you touched touched on already, which was, like, Steve, Ethan Hawke's face. Yeah. Tremendous face acting. <laughs> it's just... Right. Uh, like, I, and you're watching alcohol eat him away. You're, you're, you're watching his body t- deteriorate in other ways. And, um, you know, a, a combination of his, his physicality. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there was some, some makeup work, uh, being done as well from, from the, uh, on the design side uh, of the filmmaking. So, uh, yeah, just, yeah, all that stuff in combination, it, it really fits together. But also the, the filmmaking itself, like the camera, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a movie where the camera is so, still and just like not moving yeah. at all like when you i actually thought you meant economical when you said that instead of ecological because, <laughs> well that too actually now that you mentioned it yeah because yeah. like the, uh, it's just one of the most still movies i've ever seen to the point where when the camera pans just like a little bit i was just like whoa this is slow down there <laughs> i'm used to like living well, and, in you, this- and you know it's moving for a reason too which is kind of kind of at least for me it's made has made rewatches uh super rewarding like I've wanted to show it to some people, so I've shown it to a few people, and so I've seen it like three or four times at this point this year. Um, and it's nice that it's on, you know, a few different streaming sites and stuff too. So it, it makes stuff like that, you know, when you have cinematography and you, and you have performances to look into, just kind of despite how kind of harrowing and and uh, you know pretty much completely depressing it is, uh, it's 
it holds up, I guess. It was very much an experience. Kayla, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, so I, full disclosure, have mm-hmm. not seen this movie, but I think it's really mm-hmm. interesting. We've been living in such anxious and shitty times. And uh, we talked about uh, ecological stuff when we did our segment on Annihilation. Oh, for sure. And I just, I think it's interesting that we're in the middle of this like really weird time and Hollywood is still churning out like a million Marvel movies a second and whatnot. I just think it's really good that we're still getting these kind of movies that are seeking to kind of address the problems that we're having, the fears that we're having. And I don't know. It's just like one of those times where I appreciate when people are trying to pretend like there's no good movies coming out and like no important movies are coming out. And we still get, you know, these kind of knocked out of the park performances and storylines. And this was like written and directed before we even got some of the latest, uh, very dire studies on climate change. So this might just yeah, be the start. Right. This might be the next new thing. God. The next uh, zeitgeisty theme, maybe? Yeah. Uh, That's a callback exactly. to something before we were recording. Yeah, tell them that. That's good. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, what you said about like wondering if we should even be having children and how that's a big point. That was like a real conversation I had to have with myself earlier this year where I was just like, I don't know if it's actually a good idea ever to do that because we're murdering the earth and that sucks. I mean, it's not great. Yeah. No, (laughs) really cheery movie to discuss, I guess. Cheery topics. Even though it is like, you know, depressing and existential in a certain way, it there's something about it where it doesn't make me feel just like uh woefully depressed the way other very dire yeah, movies the, do um the, the, it, it kind of detaches from itself in a few places and especially the ending i mean the ending is is pretty controversial um i think there are probably people pretty sternly on either side if they enjoyed it or not i i like uh ambiguity so uh, that that kind of ending is always going to be attractive to me. So uh, without again, without spoiling too much, I I liked the I don't way think it ended. You could- well, um, that like I mean, you can tell someone what. Happened. Yeah, true. And you then, can, you can like, explain it, and people are still gonna be like, uh, like "That okay. doesn't make sense." Whatever you so say, like, yeah. And I think I think maybe because it uh, it it wants you to wonder what's real and what's not, it, it it kind of keeps it from being as you know totally crushing as it could be, and kind of just more makes you think about it and, and, and want to, uh, you know, continue to ponder on what the hell you just saw kind of, you know? Yeah. It's a really tremendous movie, which I, I haven't seen that much Paul Schrader and like, I know he like obviously has this history in a lot of classic movies, but man, he's made some, uh, very, uh, interesting fare too. I maybe pulled up his IMDB and was reminded that he directed the Brady Sonella script at the canyons. Sorry. Yeah, I have not seen that one, um, admittedly. But when when I kind of fell in love with this movie as much as I did, I went through and, and downloaded, uh, or I mean, uh, purchased all the DVDs and Blu-rays of all these movies that I wanted to watch. I saw I, I, uh, his first movie is called Blue Collars, the first movie he directed. It stars Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, and Yafet Kodo. And it's about like uh, working class people and deals a lot with like union politics and stuff like that. And it was again, oddly really relevant for a movie from 1978 um, and really excellent. I loved it. And he did um, the cap. Yeah. The cat people remake, which is, you know, it's a little overwrote, but I like it too. Um, Machinima in four chapter, a life in four chapters is really good. Uh, that was on Filmstruck for a while, actually. 
so yeah, I, I kind of went through some of his stuff and I, I don't think it's all excellent, which is why I haven't like kind of plowed through absolutely everything, but there, there's some, some really cool stuff in there uh, for sure. That's part of why I brought it up. I knew you went through some of his work and at the very least, like, for for my cheap comment about the canyons, it does it, like it is a very interesting filmography. It's yeah, it's it seems really all over the place. Excellent. Well, we're about at the ten minute mark, so I think we'll wrap it up now. Sean, do you have any final points you want to make on First Reform besides hey, really good movie? Um, no, not necessarily. Just yeah, yeah, check it out. I I, I know it's on Amazon Prime because it's an A two four release, um, and I, I don't know if it's anywhere else streaming. Um, of course, you can you can purchase it and all that too. So um, yeah. Check it out, I guess, for your consideration. Ethan Hawke for all the best actor awards, right? We yeah. really are in that like Ethan Hawke renaissance period right now. Yeah, it's pretty excellent. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Or, or he never really went away, but now he's just like it seems like every year he has like two or three roles. You're like, really? Come on, nice. Maybe he just got a better agent. Sean, thanks for joining us again. As with every year, uh, we look forward to having you on again. So hopefully before the end of the year. Yeah, please come year. on for a full episode. We have no rules anymore, sure, so you can do yeah. whatever movie you want. Right, and we don't <laughs> have to lose another recording of the thing. Okay, great, great. All right, I'll keep my uh, I'll keep my eyes open and, and pick something soon then. Joining us now is director of Hell House LLC and its sequel, Stephen Cognetti. Stephen, thanks for joining us again. Hey guys, great to be back. You made it sound like you were the sequel to your own movie, but you know, <laughs> I was. It, it's it's uh, it's, it's called Stephen Cognetti, uh, written and directed by Stephen Cognetti, and I'm really <laughs> excited about it. Um, just really wanted to get your name out there, you know? It's, yeah, it's just uh, it's kind of boring uh not a lot of people like it so far the early reviews are bad but um i think it's gonna be a good one it's like steven cognetti biopic of steven cognetti yes. working on hell house trilogy and it's just like you locked in a room yeah. writing yeah. <laughs> if, if people could write autobiographies why not like auto biopics I'm right sure. yeah it's a, it's a lot of wine and um it's a lot of wine a lot, some sometimes there's scotch mixed in so um but uh it depends there's gonna that's just uh, a lot of the scenes and uh yeah and a lot of writing and um hair pulling out but uh we're really excited uh, it's coming out uh, this december so wait a minute this is what we came here to talk about though <laughs> steven oh, you don't want to talk about fake biopics okay <laughs> i mean i do wait but- i do have one thing i have to clarify before we actually get into it when you say the scotch is mixed in you don't mean with the wine right because that would be horrible I, it would be horrible i don't know would it? Now, that, now that i think about it i don't know
I haven't gives it a nice oaky taste. Or maybe it looks like a dry red in my work. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, when you say it, yeah, it sounds gross. But I mean, how can we know until we try it? So, all right, tell you fun. what. So Press we'll talk. Gonna... Yeah, we'll talk about your stuff, and then the next time you're on, you have to let, you have to try that before <laughs> and let us know how it goes. All right, it's a deal. I'm going to do it. We'll have like a, we'll have like a running a running joke. Oh <laughs> It'll be closing time and wine mixed with scotch. It, it's going to be my uh, 2019 uh, resolution is to try that combo. So, awesome. So, well, I'm well, glad well, I locked that one down. <laughs> Weeks ago, and I locked that one down. <laughs> Perfect. What we actually came here to talk about, though, is the thing that you enjoyed watching most this year and you are our first guest to not pick a movie and that's kind of awesome so please tell us what your favorite thing of the year was i sat down and everyone was talking about it and so um took me a while to get to it It takes me a while to get to everything um hashtag kids and when i watched the first episode of the haunting of hill house on netflix i uh i felt like tom cruise with renee zellweger looking across the room saying you had me at hello, but she said that, not Tom Cruise. So that that analogy doesn't work out perfectly. He said, you complete me. He said, you complete me. That's it. Yeah. And I said to the TV screen, I said, you complete me. And my <laughs> wife said, what, what are you talking about, dear? And um, <laughs> I was like, ah, don't, I'm having my thing. But it was so good. It had me immediately wrapped into it. I loved everything about that 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 story, the type of horror they use, the flashbacks they use. Um, there's so many elements in that that it's just everything I love about uh, a, a good uh, a good film a good film in general not just a good horror film and a series obviously but uh, there's so many elements of this it didn't seem like you're watching a series it seemed like you were just watching an amazing movie but uh, so I loved it and that's why I chose it it was my favorite thing uh, horror wise watching this this year so what were some of the elements that really appealed to you because like I have like a few in mind myself but. I believe like the last time we were the last time you were on, we talked about like what about horror as a genre, but especially like our favorite horror movies appeals to us. Like, like what are some specific examples of how this series impressed you? Okay, well, the first scare, it wasn't really a scare. It was just something that that sent chills through my spine. And I love that feeling. Yeah, you really like the literal chills. And is nothing. It's it's what I love most about a good horror film is is not the jump scares. It's just the subtleties of the scares, and that's what I and that's what I, I love the most. That I try to put a lot of them in the Hell House myself because it's my favorite kind of scare. And it's that scene where uh, the brother walks into the apartment and he sees his sister and he's like, "Hey, mm-hmm. what's going on?" And he gets the call from his father and he's like, "You know, your sister Nell, she's she's dead." And he's like, "What are you talking about? She's here in the apartment with me." And that's that's such a Right there, I was just like, ooh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, then that's when I was like, I got my hands together. I was like, I am in. I love what they're doing. They're not, you know, there's nothing jumping out the closet at me. It's just subtle. And it's perfect. And that just from right there, that first creepy scare um, had me. And then, uh, but the it, it, but you already, you're liking the characters for their individuality. And it, it, so that, that gets started uh, really early. So just from the first episode, there's so much to love about it. Uh, for me, one of the things I love the most, and just in general, not just in films and everything, I love abandoned buildings, abandoned structures of any kind. And uh, and obviously, you know, Hell House had itself an abandoned place and it worked into it. But uh, the whole idea of Hill House is an abandoned place that we we're learning its history through flashbacks and everything. But we know of it when we come upon it. It's a it's an abandoned uh, mansion. 
and it's telling a story. It has a story to tell. Every abandoned structure has a story to tell, and this this abandoned mansion has a lot of mysteries, a lot of a lot of a big story to tell, and and that's one of my favorite things about any kind of story, uh, any kind of movie or anything. It's just uh, you know we're exploring an abandoned structure, past and present and future, and it, so it had that element of which I love. So there's so many different elements about it that just had me immediately. Yeah, I think Mike Flanagan is like the king of editing, in my opinion. There are a lot of of things in Hill House that reminded me of his movie Oculus, which had kind of like not the same plot, but a similar structure where you're flashing back and forth between the past and the present and kind of piecing this entire story together. And so many things about Hill House made me wish that we had like a 10 episode Oculus series because the first time I ever saw that movie it was one of the first horror movies that I really was like, I was like, I love this. And it was when I finally, I think started to admit to myself that it was a genre that I was passionate about. And I just think that he is so talented at making you care about every stage of the story. And with Hill House, when you have such an ensemble cast, it's incredible. Like I just, I could sing his praises forever to be honest, but, and then like, not even just story-wise, but technically. I think it was episode six that has that first shot that's like 20 minutes long. I just was on the couch pretty much holding my breath the entire time because I couldn't believe it. And it was so well done and so gorgeously executed. I mean, to me, episode six is on its own the best horror movie of the year. Yeah, I would agree with that. Everything about that episode was, was creepy, so beautifully done perfect in every way that 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 one off they do is just uh it's amazing to watch and so well executed and it's so crazy when you read about it too because i guess pretty much everything was broken by the time they actually got to shoot it like camera wise and the dollies and stuff so even more impressive that they were able to pull it off considering what they were working with i think yeah, I didn't read about that. What happened? Um, he posted a thread on Twitter about it because I guess a lot of people were asking. And when they were practicing... About the one-off? In the, or? Yeah, and I guess when they were practicing the shot that the way that the carpet was in the funeral parlor set, it kept getting caught in the wheels of the dolly and, and the camera was so heavy. I, I'm not... I don't know enough about like the technical aspects of it, but it was it had a lot to do with the camera being too heavy and the wheels of the dolly having carpet in them all the time and everything was breaking. Wow. I apparently not. <laughs> so yeah. So by the time they actually shot it, they pretty much had one take to get it right, and then the dolly immediately broke when they were done with it. But so, they nailed it. So. Yeah. But yeah, and uh, on the topic of jump scares, I think that this show actually has the most perfect jump scare of all time. In I think it's the second to last episode when Theo and Shirley are driving to the house and they're having that oh, yeah. argument, and it was oh, my god, yes. So spoilers, obviously, but um, so when Nell's ghost just kind of pops out in the middle of them, there's like no music queuing it up, nothing. It just happens. And then you get this amazing monologue from Theo. And I was like, this is what we should be doing with jump scares instead of scary music and whatever. It just, it's got to happen and it needs to make sense. And it was just amazing. (laughs) They worked out. Yeah. So well, well done. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a jump scare. That was just like, uh, it, it was well placed, well done. Really good. It took me a little while to love Mike Flanagan's work. Like I always like really respected it. And he's just got such a way with the character stuff is really good. And then also like really good at doing all these uh, very subtle but specific horror elements too. And I just, I find it super impressive that he's able to tell this 
super character based movie while threading in the horror yeah. throughout in such a way that the exact kind of thing that then causes people to argue about, well, is it really horror or is it more of like an elevated drop? We don't need to get into that though, but I, I was just very impressed throughout with like, just, I really love the family, just all the family dynamics. I right. am so invested in what happens to them. And I do wonder like what I would want to talk to like every individual person who's watched it about what they think of the ending, because I'm very curious about how different people react to that. But even just like getting people invested all the way till the end, it's super impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, Stephen, how did you feel about the ending? Um, I mean, put me on the spot. Good question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Uh, still figuring it out a little bit too. So no worries. I just, I remember being satisfied and enjoying the whole run up to everything that I wasn't, um, I wasn't really expecting or hoping or needing um, some really big, crazy, you know, last 10 minutes of the, of the series to, you know, to do something to me. I think the, the whole, all the, all the episodes were just so amazing and such a great buildup. And, and, and what it was, it was, it was, it was closure is what the ending was. Mm-hmm. It was, and I, I think, I, I think he, they ended it where they needed to end it. And I think that's, the, that was the best way to end it for the story. So if anyone was looking for something more, you know, I don't think this story was about that, but uh, I, I, I was just, I think my, the only word I could use is satisfied. Yeah. And I would say that the story was always more about the family than it actually was about the house and like having a battle yeah. with the house. And so I was a little disappointed at first, but the more I thought about it, the more I was on board with it. <laughs> Closure is a good word. For yeah. That. Yeah. And I, I guess that's the difference. What they did with the, uh, you know, translating the book to, to the screen was they, made a made it a family drama and um instead of uh actually i never read the book but reading about the book the book sounded a lot to me like um uh hell house so the book is nothing like the show (laughs) i gotta say right and do but do you remember the book hell house no i don't think i've ever oh the richard um, matheson one i've never read that yeah richard matheson yeah yeah i do that was the first horror novel i've ever read and i think that was that was from what 60s 70s so in, i think it was when it was written. i believe so uh right and this one yeah 71 uh hill house was like in the 50s they, they seem similar to me just reading like read i i read hell house but i never read uh hill house and they but the but the premises seem very similar to me though so um and, and so I'm, I'm glad that flanagan was actually able to take this book and and do a deeper dive with characters uh, and, and not make it about the house, which where I think both Hill, Hill House and Hell House, the novels, you know, both classic horror novels were both more, uh, more about the, the, the house. And so, and he, yeah, he took the whole family dynamic and and there's been some criticism about that. But uh, I love what he did with the characters and, and making you care about the characters. And I think that's what sells when you care about these characters so much and, you know, you know them, you know, their childhood and, you know, their adulthood. I, I think that just sells the story so much more. So I like I like the, what they do with the adaptation. Yeah, and I have to say, like as a fan of the book, I was initially pretty disappointed when they announced it was going to be this like modernized family thing. But then when I saw it, I really loved it. So I think you can have adaptations that exist as you know separate so pieces of you, art. You read the book? Yeah, I'm I am actually like number one huge Shirley Jackson fan. So um, I was awesome. yeah. This was like even if it wasn't like the perfect adaptation that I wanted of the the source material the the cast and the director and the way that it ended up is 
better than I could have ever dreamed for, honestly. So what, um, what I was going to ask you, what, like, what, like elements from the book do you think come out the most? Mm, honestly, in the, so in the, in the book, Nell is the main character and she is an adult woman who is kind of out on her own for the first time, but she's very, very unstable. And I think that they did a really good job of that with Nell in the show of just kind of like explaining that a little bit better. And the other thing that they brought out the best of was Theo being a lesbian. <laughs> Cause it's like really heavily implied in the source material. And it's nice to okay. like, I guess it's not like a great like, example, but it's good to see that kind of like realized on screen instead of just, hinted at the entire time right but yeah i would say honestly also the atmosphere of the house is really good because in the book there are definitely a lot of scenes where the characters are confused by the layout of the house i think there's even a mention of the house kind of changing its layout Mm -hmm. or just like being generally confusing like you can never quite get a grasp on it and the spiral staircase being super dangerous so just having the spirit of the house on film is good how about any of the scares anything like Mm, that you know it's the scares in the book are often played off as did that really happen or is it just in her head so i would say it's not quite the same but i kind of like the way that the show handled it a lot better i I like when movies and books are very direct (laughs) that this is happening it is real we don't have to worry about this element of it being in your head or not Right. This is happening not right. That's kind of annoying though. But uh, I did read somewhere that um, I was reading a lot about the book and one of these days, uh, I think when uh, my kids are old enough to, uh, when they moved out of the house and got to college, I'll get back to reading <laughs> novels like I used to. Uh, they, they talk about ghosts roaming the hallways um, uh, in a synopsis I, I read. And that reminded me, I was like, oh, is that something like um, that scene with the, the guy with the cane? I would say so. Floating yeah. I think they took a little bit of liberty with the design of the ghost, but the ghost just kind of wandering around and popping in and out is very in line with what's in the novel. It's so well done. It's so creepy, that scene. I, yeah, show. every everything with the ghost, and especially I, I bookmarked it and I need to go back and read it. There's like a BuzzFeed article that's all the ghosts you missed in Hill House. And I kind of want to go oh, through God. it because there were definitely a few that I noticed that yeah. my boyfriend didn't, a few that he noticed that I didn't. And I just need to know where all of them were. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, there's so much in the background that like you can miss. And that's the best thing. You know, things in the background that you might not see the first time, but you have to go back and, and watch and faces. Yeah, I remember I was I was watching with my wife and I'd be like, did you see that? She'd be like, no, we had to rewind so many times because <laughs> like either she had saw something that I didn't or, or vice versa. And it was uh, that's what makes it whenever you have to rewind to go back and say, did you see that? Those, that's something about horror I love when you have to say like when some of the audience might not have seen something and, and you have to go back and, and check it out yourself. But that, it, it's such a good job in this one. Yeah, that's the kind of attention to detail that's just super rewarding where it's like not trying to it's not also pointing itself out saying, hey, look, I know I, I did. You see what I did? I know what I did. It's uh, well, it, it just it, also yeah. shows a lot of like care given to it, mm-hmm. too. And, uh, and it gives you something to look for on the rewatch, too. <laughs> you know, replay, replay value in between <laughs> all the emotional trauma. Just like, oh, hey, look, a ghost. Uh, yeah, no, this, this one has a lot of replay value to it. One of my favorite uh, shots was um, when uh, when when Nell when she when they finally got to her episode when when she went back to Hill House and she was uh, when she was dancing mm-hmm. and they showed her dancing and they they kept on showing her back and forth dancing in the 
decay and abandoned old house mm-hmm. and and the house when it was it was so beautiful and I, I love that showing it back and forth where she's just dancing in in an old dark house but uh you know it but it shows her vision of it too it's uh you know and that, and that whole thing about seeing a house present and past uh is something i, I love about film too so mm-hmm. and that's another another shot that I love. Awesome. I think we are coming up on time. So do you have any like final points that you want to make about Hill House? Uh, watch it if you haven't. Um, did they talk about doing anything more on that? Are they going to try to build, uh, make another season on this source material at all? Um, Has anyone heard I haven't heard anything about it. I It doesn't really seem like his style, to be honest, but I wouldn't say no. Yeah, I mean, I just thought maybe the, the fact that it's not a feature uh, and it's a series that maybe they might might do that though. It's it's I mean, it's one of Netflix's best series. Like ever, absolutely, really. yeah, hundred percent agree. So Netflix get on more horror, yeah. start adapting more. That's the thing though. I mean, there's so much good horror out there to adapt that hasn't been adapted. I think we talked about this last time. I mean, Stephen King alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much out there that hasn't been adapted or ha- was adapted in the '90s and not adapted well enough and deserves its 10 episode stint on HBO or Netflix or something like that. So, um, and I, I think this is a wake up call that there's, there's, there's source material out there and these uh, studios got to get on. I think we can all agree yes, on that. Yes, hundred percent. We all agree on that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, do you have anything quickly that you'd like to plug before we go? Uh, no, uh, hell house, but with an E not I, um, is on prime and, uh, Hell House 2 will be on Amazon in January and Hell House 3 shooting in May and it's going to be out in October of 2019 and that is going to be kick ass. <laughs> awesome. We are so excited for that also. So thank you for joining us and we will hopefully talk to you again soon. 